Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're privileged to have as our guest, Dr. Philip Swagel, Director of the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, as we call it here in Washington. Uh, the CBO just released its budget and economic outlook for fiscal years 2024 through 2034, and the purpose of that is to extend budget uh, projections and economic forecasts over the next 10 years under the assumption that current spending and tax laws remain generally unchanged. Uh, at the Concord Coalition, we look forward to this report every year like it's Christmas morning. We unpack it and look at all the new numbers that we have to play with. Uh, they're actually a little bit more frightening than most Christmas mornings, but anyway. So anyway, if you want to look at the future, you good place to start is the CBO baseline. Joining the conversation today are Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Uh, just a little background, uh, Dr. Swagel became the Director of the Congressional Budget Office on uh, June 3rd, 2019, and I'm happy to say he was reappointed for a second term on July 27th of 2023. Uh, so, Phil, it looks like you're you're going to be uh, stuck with giving these budget projections for a while yet, but we uh, we really look forward to it. You know, Phil, Tori, and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Uh, thanks, Bob. Yeah, Bob. Um, thanks, thanks so much, and it, it's a pleasure to be here with with the three of you. Uh, well, we we always enjoy uh, having you for this uh, this review, and appreciate your taking time to do it because I know this is a very very busy time of year for you. So. With the budget outlook this year, what's the what's the basic storyline, and has it changed any appreciably from uh, last year? Oh, okay, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, you know, maybe I'll go through a couple of the key points and what's the same and what's um, uh, different. Um, you know, the, the big picture is similar to the past that the U.S. fiscal trajectory is unsustainable; that we have wide deficits out into the future and that means rising debt you know it's not it's not that we're going to fall off some sort of fiscal cliff at um, any moment but over time there'll be increasing risks to the US economy from the fiscal situation so that that's the case in our report that we just released and that's similar to what's been um, shown in, in the past um, uh, some of the highlights um, within that big picture are the rising impact of net interest payments. So this is the the interest that the U.S. pays on on the debt, and that's rising and, and really becoming a, a, a large and, and meaningful share of our budget deficit. So that's in some sense the, the near-term fiscal challenge. And then the longer-term fiscal challenge is a familiar one, um, which is from entitlement spending, um, Social Security, and Medicare, reflecting the aging of our population and excess cost growth in healthcare. So the, the, that's kind of the the, the worrisome part. Uh, maybe I'll highlight two things um, in our report that um, you know are, are some sense a, 
a little bit of good news or at least have hints of good news. So, and first is that legislation enacted last year by the, by the Congress and signed into law by President Biden did improve the fiscal trajectory. And this was the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, and then the subsequent continuing resolutions that in some sense have implemented um, some of the, the deceleration of spending uh, that was in the Fiscal Responsibility Act, the, the FRA. Um, and so altogether, that improved the 10-year fiscal uh, balance by about $2.6 trillion. Now, there are other things that happened between last year's uh, numbers and, and this year's. So the net improvement is, is only $1.4 trillion over 10 years. So it's a lot of dollars. The problem is still large, but there was an improvement um, uh, in, in our projections this time. And then just the other thing that that uh, is salient in our projections is the impact of the surge of immigration that the United States has experienced since 2022. Um, and we calculate that the the labor force, so the number of people working in the United States or available to work in the United States, will be about 5.2 million higher at the end of our 10-year budget window than we thought would be the case uh, a year ago. So that's 5.2 million uh, more people available to work, and that has an impact on the economy and then an impact on the budget. You know, uh, I think you mentioned all of the things that we talk about on on this show um, that are salient to the budget outlook. One of the things that really got my attention this year. I mean, it hasn't past years, but, um, and you mentioned it, is the rising cost of servicing the debt, the uh, the interest costs. And, you know, one of my least favorite factoids is that the interest is a percentage of the economy. Um, we're, we're setting a record apparently next year and, and throughout the baseline. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, so it's not like a near miss. It's not like we're just, you know, a little bit more on interest. It's a lot bigger and extends over time. Um, I mean, is that because of rising debt or rising interest rates on the debt? Or obviously, it's some combination of the two. But how does that uh, affect the bottom line? Okay. Uh, and no, that's right. It's a combination of the two. And our calculations are that the increasing debt service is about two-thirds from higher interest rates as compared to the projections we had a year ago, and one-third from the increased amount of debt. So it's both, but higher interest rates are part of it. And even um, this morning, uh, with with the most recent inflation figures, we see interest rates rising as inflation came in a little bit higher than market participants expected. And that, that translates into higher interest rates. So it just illustrates the sorts of risks that um, the US faces if interest rates are yet higher than we have in our projections, well, then the fiscal situation would, would be yet more difficult. You know, one of the things that we look at also, and you mentioned it, is the the rising cost of the mandatory spending pro programs, which are mostly related to healthcare and retirement, um, Social Security and Medicare and part of Medicaid. Uh, Looking at what's driving those, um, is it is it uh, mostly population aging? What's what's the uh, relative balance between population aging and and healthcare costs rising? You know, it's a mix between Social Security and Medicare, and that the challenges with Social Security are smaller than those with Medicare, but they're sooner. Um, and Social Security, of, of course, is entirely aging. Uh, there are fewer workers per retiree as we. Um, 
you know, go into the future as, as the, our society ages. With Medicare, it's about half and half. So it's half the aging of the population. There's more people on Medicare and fewer people paying in, and then half the excess cost growth that um, you know that, that affects the, the the cost of Medicare. Okay, uh, just on the on the revenue side, there's there's kind of a roller coaster of, uh, of revenues. It, we had a big spike in 2022, and then they really came down in 2023 and went back up again uh, and mm-hmm. projected to go back up again and bounce around a little bit. Bottom line is, after they settle out, it's sort of a slow, steady expansion, but not as high, uh, not as fast an expansion as the spending uh, growth. But basically, what, what is the revenue picture and the undulations? Oh, okay, yeah, I think the way you put it is is you know, spot on that there's some kind of ups and downs. Um, you know, as you said, we had a revenue spike, especially from capital gains receipts. Um, those revenues fell off sharply last year. And then there are a couple of administrative actions that had the effect of pushing revenues from 2023 into 2024. And so these are the, the disaster de- declarations, such as for the entire state of California. You know, uh, we had a delay in, in tax filing. In, you know, into fiscal year 24. And then there is a new minimum tax for corporations that was part of an earlier uh, bill that the um, administration has was not able to put out guidance last year. And so the, those revenues will come in eventually on the corporate side, but those have been delayed. So there's, there's some of this up and down. Over time, we do have revenues rising and, and slightly rising as a share of GDP, but not going up by as much as the spending. And so that, that's the challenge, that we have a, a gap between what the government's spending and what it's taking in, and that is not not narrowing over time. Yeah, and then that's, that's like the, the primary deficit, not to get too geeky here, but I mean, excluding interest is, is you know, kind of big, and that, that adds interest costs, makes the whole thing get bigger. So it's this uh, exploding wedge over time. Just quickly, Quickly, uh, on the economic projections, you know, looks pretty stable, a little bit of up and down again, like the revenue projections in the beginning, but slowly uh, shrinking over time. And uh, what's the driving factor behind that? It's a slow, you know, like I said, slowly sinking, but what's the dynamic there? Okay, this is on the, on the economic side. That, yeah, so uh, I'd like GDP growth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, so the economic... Um, picture that we see in the balance of this year, so in the rest of 2024, is that the, the Fed's interest rates hikes will start to impact the economy more over time. And the Fed has done a lot already that's had some effect, and we see some of that, such as in the housing sector. Much of the economy has remained pretty strong. And consumer spending has been buoyant, even as um, interest rate hikes you know, have come into, into the economy. Over time, we see some slowdown in consumer spending and business investment that will translate into a, a slowdown in hiring as inflation comes you know comes down. It's going to be a slow process over 2024 and into 2025. And then as the Fed starts to ease interest rates, you know, probably later this year, and then into next year, we see growth rebounding a bit. And then, as you said, sort of moderating and, and stabilizing um, from 2026 on. Well, we're going to have to take a break there. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking to Dr. Philip Swagel. 
He is the director of the Congressional Budget Office, and we're uh, discussing CBO's latest budget and economic projections. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Dr. Philip Swagel. He's the director of the Congressional Budget Office, and we're talking to him about the agency's latest budget and economic outlook. Uh, in this segment, uh, Tori Gorman is going to handle the question. Tori, go ahead. First, Phil, I just wanted to give a shout out to you and, and your staff. I was a revenue forecaster when I first got out of graduate school, and I know how hard putting together a baseline, especially as one as complicated as this is. So my hat's off to, to you and your staff and uh, all the, the work that they do. They, 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 they don't get enough appreciation. So I'd like to express mine. Um, the first, what I wanted to talk about basically today is, is baseline construction and specifically the assumptions that go into projecting revenues and spending, and those are what generate the forecasts of, of deficits and debt. Real quick question before, uh, did con Congress has not yet finished their work on fiscal 24 uh, discretionary appropriations. Did that mess up your baseline at all, or were you able to just move forward because of the, the information that was in the Fiscal Responsibility Act? Uh, no, it's a good question. And we did have to think about it. Well, what what would the appropriations be in our baseline? Because it's it's both for 2024 and 2025 that were covered by the Fiscal Responsibility Act, by the, by the caps. But then we extend that, um, you know, the, that discretionary spending out into the future according to a formula that's that's in statute. Um, so we looked at well, what was current law at the beginning of January when we locked our um, our baseline numbers, and at the time it was. One part of the of the FRA of the Fiscal Responsibility Act dictated caps for 2024. It's Section 102, and then Section 101 dictated dictated a slightly different set of caps for discretionary spending in 2025. And we said we don't know what will prevail once the Congress, you know, eventually finishes the full year appropriations. But as of the time we locked the baseline, that was current law, and so that's what we have: is the you know 102 caps for 24, and then 101 caps for 25, and then those get extended out. Second question was on revenues. Bob had mentioned that there's a little bit of bouncing around of, of revenues, especially in the early part of the, the budget window, the first five years. Part of that obviously is attributable to the expiration of the 2017 tax cuts. People refer to it as the TCJA or the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act or the Trump tax cuts, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the, the tax cuts that were promulgated in, or enacted in, in uh, 2017, the individual portion of those, those expire in, in, in 2025. So I guess my question to you is, you know, basically what impact did that have on the revenue baseline? Every presidential candidate and member of Congress running for offices is promising to extend those tax cuts. So why do you assume that they expire? And the third question is, is how much would it cost to extend those tax cuts? The expiration of many of the provisions in the uh, December 2017 Tax Act shows up very clearly in our projections of revenues. And so going from 2025 to 2026, there is an increase in uh, revenues of about nine, cents of, nine tenths of a percent of GDP. It's several hundred billion a year. So it's like on the order of $300 billion uh, a year in additional revenue. And that's there because that's current law. As you said, there are many proposals to extend you know, all of the 
2017 Act or, you know, much of it. Um, and depending on what eventually is enacted, well, that would have additional costs in terms of revenues. Okay. And separately, on the other side, on the spending side, we all know, anybody who's been listening to the podcast and and, and listening to your work, uh, Social Security, the trust fund becomes insolvent in 2033, which is inside the budget window, and mm-hmm. will only be pay- able to pay I don't know what the number is these days, 75, 76, 73 cents mm-hmm. on the dollar. But that drop in, in benefit, that drop in spending doesn't show up in the baseline. Can you talk a little bit about why uh, why that is the case and then why the different treatment between taxes, tax cuts that are expiring, but uh, an entitlement program that's not able to pay full, pay full benefits, why the, the different treatment of the two in the baseline? Oh, okay. Um, no, absolutely. And, and you've highlighted some of the, the rules that we are required to follow by statute in constructing the baseline. And this is one of them, the different treatment of revenue provisions and these entitlement programs. Um, so as you said, there's a trust fund behind Social Security. There's, there's two of them, one for disability, one for the old age and survivors fund. And we have the, the trust fund, the bigger one, um, for the retirement portion being exhausted in 2033. So as you said, within the budget window. In our projections, though, we continue to project Social Security outlays as if the trust fund does not um, does not get exhausted. So in some sense, we're showing the fiscal impact of the promised benefits or the scheduled benefits, even though under current law, those scheduled benefits are not payable. We have an, another report that we will put out later uh, this year. It'll it'll come out in the spring, so sometime before, um, I think June 20th is the beginning of summer. So t- sometime before then, we will put out our long-term budget outlook, and that will go more into detail, and it will also show the payable benefits rather than just the scheduled benefits. So we will provide policymakers with the impact of, of this requirement that, um, you know, the benefits that are promised versus the benefits that are um, payable under current law. Several years ago, uh, CBO was in the ha- under a different director several generations ago, I think. CBO was in the habit of putting out alternative baselines as part of their, their, their baseline. In other words, we hmm. know, for example, that the tax cuts are expiring, but we know that members of Congress largely plan to extend them. We know that Social Security is is going to be insolvent in the baseline, but we know that Congress is going to do something about it to prevent any kind of cut in benefits. Is there any conversation within CBO about putting out an alternative baseline that more reflects political reality rather than current law? I mean, you've said you know many times that the CBO baseline is a current law baseline based on the laws on the books that are in right now. Is there something, is there uh, any consideration about putting out a current policy baseline? Mm-hmm. Okay, it, it is something we think about in some sense. Our, you know, our first focus is well, our mission and this what's required by statute. But then we think to ourselves, well, what can we do that will help policymakers understand the situation without putting our preferences on it? So, in some sense, the the kind of completeness, comprehensiveness of our analysis is is important. And so that's why you know we will do both the promised benefits and the payable benefits. Um, just to give that that complete sense, as you said, we have put out these alternative scenarios in the past. Um, you know, we we try to look at well, what are the major provisions that are expiring on both spending and on revenues, and do extensions of those, and not and so not try to get 
like political, not just try to think of, okay, what's one political package and what's another, but just try to say, okay, what are the major um, pieces? But in some sense, that, that's probably enough information for someone who wants to do the, the political inflection to do. So we'll have some of that in the long-term budget outlook. Um, we'll have a, a couple of different assumptions about what happens with spending. The complexity of the possible scenarios in instances that the different interactions with, between revenues and spending mean that we'll probably end up doing more at a later time, which is something we've done in the past. We put out a separate document with alternative scenarios. Um, and in part, we also work very closely with our sister agency, the Joint Committee on Taxation, um, which does the estimates for tax provisions. So that kind of what's the fiscal impact of expiring uh, tax provisions, the De- December 2017 Act, that would be estimated by JCT. And then we work with them to provide more information to policymakers. Got it. Uh, right now, let's let's talk about emergency spending and how that is or is not included in the baseline. Uh, right now, in late night hours, the United States Senate passed an emergency supplemental appropriations bill uh, that contained uh, uh, security spending for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, et cetera, at about $95 billion. It's all designated as an emergency. How is emergency spending treated in a, in a baseline? If we have a big natural disaster, you know, a major Category Five hurricane mm-hmm. that requires hundreds of billions of dollars of relief effort, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, wildfires out west, you know, wars abroad that we are we are helping to that we provide funding for. How does that emergency designated spending get built into the baseline, or is it not included in the baseline, or is it sort of a mix? So that the, the- Legislation that was um, considered in the Senate that passed the Senate early this morning um, is not in our budget projections now because it wasn't current law as of the time that we finished them. If the legislation is enacted, if it passes the House or you know something like that passes the House and signed by the president, it would go into our next update, the baseline, which will be in in the spring, I expect. You know, depending on the timing of the appropriations, the timing of the, the president's budget. You know, I expect we'll do another update in the spring. Um, and so anything you know like that would be in there. Uh, in terms of then, well, how do we extend? Um, it's something that we work closely with the budget committees, the, the House Budget Committee and the Senate Budget Committee, about provisions that are emergencies. Well, what should we expect to go out into the future? And there's some things, uh, it wasn't an emergency, but there was a bunch of one-off spending on infrastructure, for example, in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And that's something that we did with the um, uh, in consultation with the budget committees, try to figure out, okay, what of this spending should we think of as, as ongoing and how much we say, well, no, it's just, you know, it's this many billion for the, you know, these years, and then n- not extend that into the future. Uh, that's a great tour de force on the baseline. <laughs> coming, coming up next, we'll talk about uh, the economy and CBO's economic projections. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Dr. Philip Swagel, who's the director of the Congressional Budget Office. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the latest economic and budgetary outlook issued by the Congressional Budget Office. And we're privileged to have as our guest, the director of the Congressional Budget Office, Dr. Philip Swagel. 
And in this section, I'm going to turn to Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson for some questions to Dr. Swagel about the economic projections. So, Phil, you were at a uh, hearing at the House Budget Committee a couple of weeks ago, and uh, one, one of the criticisms uh, that, that you guys sort of missed the mark on this last year's budget deficit, the, the deficit in 2023 turned out to be much, much higher than people had expected. You know, obviously, part of the reason for the miss was that the administration had implemented uh, like student loan changes that that you guys didn't anticipate, and of course, there was some, I guess, some FDIC bank bailout. Uh, but but sort of the focus was, you know, you, you guys obviously didn't predict inflation and interest rates correctly, and I think one of the arguments that I sort of heard was, well, you know, there are other people out there, and and they're doing a, a better job, and may, maybe we should use their numbers. What I guess so. From from CBO's perspective, are there any advantages or disadvantages to sort of producing your own forecast? I mean, couldn't you guys rely on you know the Federal Reserve does a, a certainly a short term forecast. The the blue chip economists they do forecasts. You know, there are other entities out there that could sort of be seen as nonpartisan. You know, professional economists making predictions. And if you guys were to use their predictions instead of your own, you could at least say, well, we weren't any wrong, you know, we weren't any more wrong than anybody else because we're using their predictions. I mean, what, what's uh, what's CBO's thought on, on sort of why not just use the blue chip or somebody like that? Okay. No, no, very good. And, and you know, I'll start by saying that transparency is a core value at CBO. And so if you look in our budget and economic outlook, there are sections that compare our forecast to others. Um, and that's a comparison that I welcome and I, I want to keep doing. Um, an important part of our forecast is that it's based on current law, right? And that's the, that is the baseline. Whereas other forecasters naturally will have a view about, well, what will happen in the future? And so, you know, you can imagine there are many um, forecasters who instances if they want to think about well what will GDP be in 2026 or even in 2025 would have to have a view about what will happen to all the expiring tax provisions that you know that, that Tori and I talked about um, and, and that view will inevitably affect you know someone's view of business investment consumer spending and GDP growth and so that kind of policy uh, view would then affect the economic forecast. And so it's just a different, in some sense, it's a different thing that we're doing than what other forecasters are doing, which is totally appropriate, right? Other forecasters, it's totally appropriate for them to say, what is our view of what Congress will do and what the Fed will do and put that into our forecast. And we're not trying to, you know, trying to front run the Congress. We're trying to say, here's the situation under current law. So that, in some sense, that's why I think it's important for CBO to do its own. Yeah, so I mean, one of the one of the other themes we heard at the hearing, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago now, was you know you you guys sort of focus on the the ten year budget outlook and everybody's saying, well, you know, how does how do your predictions you know go back ten years and look at your ten year projection and how does that compare with reality? I mean, you guys are doing something I think a little different than other forecasters. I mean, most economic forecasters are looking at the next quarter or the next year, or maybe two years out. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much more difficult is it to do a 10-year baseline? And when you do, you know, you, you guys do a, usually an annual report and sort of look at the accuracy of your projections, but you tend to focus on the short term. Have you guys done any comparisons of, 
you know, over the 10 years, since you guys have been doing 10-year estimates, as I, from what I can remember, I mm-hmm. think the first 10-year estimate came out in the early 1990s. I mean, the federal budget used to be on a three-year, then a five-year, mm-hmm. and they, they went, went to 10-year projections. I mean, has there been, or is there any thought on doing sort of a 10-year retrospective of, you know, how, mm-hmm. how, how far off are we and how much is due to the economy and how much is due to legislation? Yeah. Obviously, obviously yeah. a lot of work to de- decompose that, but is that something that's been considered or or even is it? Uh, it is. It's something, yeah. So we've been doing a series of rolling reports. As you said, it's a lot of work. So we focus on a different aspect every year. And so, you know, one year we'll do, um, you know, sort of looking back 10 years at a time on revenues. Another year we'll do on outlays mm-hmm. and then we'll do on the economy. Um and then we do, you know, every year we look back one year and say, what was it uh, last year? And that's that's where you started that the the deficit for 2023 was about a trillion dollars larger than we had predicted back in May of 2022. Um, so we try to do it in those different ways, right? The, the sort of five-year and 10-year look backs, and then, you know, sort of every couple of years, and then the one-year look back every year. But, there, but there's nobody else really doing 10-year forecasts. So unlike your short-term forecast where you can compare how you're doing relative to others, I'm not sure there's anybody to compare yourselves to when you start talking about 10 years out. I mean, is there, you know, you're you're sort of the only game in town or other than OMB, but then they're predicting the policy, not the baseline. Mm-hmm. So No, that's right. OMB is one. Uh, you're right that other, I mean, sort of the financial sector, their forecasters will tend to be short run. I'm trying to think about the IMF, World Economic Outlook. I cannot picture offhand how far out their forecasts go, but that that would be another comparison or the OECD um, uh, that, that we could compare to. And I'll say, actually, I mean, this is the, the forecast that we released in this budget economic outlook is illustrative of, of this issue. So we have a surge of immigration in our projections that started in 2022, we have lasting through 2026 and then subsiding. Um, that means a larger labor force and more income probably than, uh, than some other forecasters because in some we see, you know, more immigrants than are reflected in, in some of the current uh, numbers from the census. And it's not, not the fall of the census in some sense. It's just a, you know, more recent data from DHS and, and the, the uh, Border Patrol on the number of immigrants being released into, into the interior of the United States, they're just not showing up yet in some of the surveys. Um, they, they will. We'll, we'll, we'll get them there. Our forecast um, now, our economic and then budgetary projections are based on are these sort of more recent information from DHS, and that shows up in, in our economic forecast. Yeah, I thought that was a very, very interesting aspect that I hope, uh, you know, we'll delve more into in time because we always talk about the declining workforce growth and how that's a, a part of the long-term budget outlook in effect because it affects the uh, GDP growth. And I saw that immigration blip this year. And it, will you have more on that in the long-term outlook to see how long that might last or is that going to be uh, extended? Uh, so we had more on that in January. We produced a demographic report, demographic which was the, report. yeah, which is in some the input into the, um, the budget baseline is that looked at fertility, mortality, and net immigration, you know, which together, of course, drive uh, long-term population growth. And we'll come back to it. Um, you know, obviously, immigration is a 
you know, it's an issue with many facets to it, social and political and national security and many, you know, many others, we focus on the budget and economic. And so we'll, we'll come back to it, I suspect, over time. I suspect you will. No, no getting around it. Uh, but that's all the time uh, we have for this segment uh, and uh, all of our time with you today, uh, Phil. Thank you very much for taking the time. And, and again, as a uh, you know, just to reiterate what Tori said at the beginning, the Conquer Coalition really, really appreciates all the great work that uh, CBO does. And uh, we use your numbers all the time. They're very credible. They're well-researched. They're transparent. So uh, we really do appreciate the uh, work of you and everybody over at the Congressional Budget Office. No, thank you, Bob, and, Tori, uh, and Steve. Thank you so that's much. That's all the time we have. For this segment, uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. We'll be back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are here discussing the latest economic and budget outlook numbers from the Congressional Budget Office. And uh, we've been talking to Philip Swagel, who's the director. So, um, Steve and Tori, uh, any any follow up uh, comments? I think, uh, Steve, you wanted to talk a little bit more about the immigration numbers. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, the, the CBO director was saying that, uh, you know, because of the recent surge in immigration, that they've revised their sort of 10 year budget outlook. On the on the on the economic side, in terms of economic growth and labor force, that they've got an, about five million additional workers um, in their projection by the end of the of the ten year period. Um, in fact, if you go back and look at their numbers, they've got somewhere between three, four, five, six million per year going out uh, for the for the whole ten years. And obviously, if you have more workers, you have a bigger economy. You have you know faster as as those workers come into the labor force. Um, you have faster economic growth. It, it's not clear. I mean, obviously, if you look at the political debate that's going on on Capitol Hill right now, there seems to be a lot of angst over the recent surge in immigration. And the notion that this recent surge is going to persist throughout the 10 years and contribute significantly to higher economic growth, I think is, I, you know, it's, that's all certainly possible. But I guess you know, were, were I doing the forecast, I'm not sure I would have built in a 10-year effect of, of the recent surge in immigration, specifically given the political sensitivities around the immigration issue. Um, you know, but it's obviously that's one of those things that no, no one can predict the future. And, you know, CBO may be right that those folks stay around long enough to contribute significantly to the labor force and to economic growth are we close the gate and those folks never show up. And as a result, the long-term outlook is worse than, than CBO currently projects. So it's hard to tell. Um, yeah, it is. It was interesting that they um, put that into the projection. Um, you know, my observation about this report is that, and this is, this is nothing against CBO. I'm just looking at the numbers is these are really, really, deviations from historic norms um you know in terms of the deficits and the debt and the uh interest on the debt i i we're doing a real-time experiment in how long this sort of thing can can last i mean the it, by 2028 
we're going to have the debt held by the public uh, reaches a, a record high. Really concerns me, I think, even more is the um, uh, interest cost on the debt, which as soon as next year reaches a record high as a percentage of the economy and uh, gets higher. So, I mean, every year in the baseline, uh, the interest cost gets you know, higher and higher, not just on a nominal basis, but as a percentage of the economy and as a percentage of revenues. And, uh, you know, this is the deficits, you know, deficits have averaged 3.7 uh, of GDP over the last 50 years. Now, routinely, they're over five and basically uh, heading up to six, over 6% of GDP, which a few years ago, we would have considered catastrophic. I mean, maybe okay to deal with a, with a major economic disaster or a war or something like that. But this is the routine, steady state of all of these things. And it's totally unprecedented. And, uh, you know, I just, I don't know whether we can pull out of that. I mean, the, you know, the policy changes you would need to make now to put the debt on a steady path are getting to be pretty darn big. I think there's going to be enormous pressure in 2025 when they want to extend the expiring tax cuts to pay for them somehow, whether it's an increase in the corporate income tax rate, whether it's a VAT, whether it's some sort of, of border adjustment tax, you know, discounted cash flow border adjustment tax that we were talking about several years ago. Um, but I don't think there's any way that the twenty the twenty seventeen tax cuts get expired without some sort of offset. Well, I hope I hope that is the case. I, it probably is. I, I I tend to agree with you. Um, and then there's the pending insolvency of the OASI trust fund, the major Social Security trust fund in twenty thirty three. You know, within the budget window. Clearly, they will have to do something. They will have to pass some piece of legislation associated with that, um, because otherwise, there'll be a twenty percent benefit cut, which I think is rather unlikely. Well, I mean, if you recall, back in twenty fifteen, the disability trust fund was facing insolvency, and they reallocated a part of the tax, the social security tax from the old age system over to the disability system. They did a temporarily temporary cash infusion and they boosted the DI trust fund. Unfortunately, this time around, we can't do that. Um, you know, your, your CBO is saying that the, the old age survivors fund is, is going to exhaust in 2033. The, the deficit is so large in that portion that if you took whatever was remaining in the DI trust fund on a combined basis, both trust funds will be exhausted in 2034. So, you know, we, we don't have the, the opportunity to, 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 to shuffle money between the two trust funds and bail them out. And same with Medicare, although it, it's not quite exhausted in the final year, uh, the deficit that year is as large as the, as the balance in the trust fund, you know, at the beginning of the year. So it's likely that the, the Medicare HI trust fund will also go, uh, it will be exhausted uh, in 2035. So, you know, we've got all three of the major trust funds exhausting within the 10-year window or just shortly thereafter. Yeah, again, we talk about, well, maybe they'll, you know, just use general revenues. Well, I mean, they can't without passing legislation to do so. Um, by the way, is something that you said triggered another factoid in me that's just astounding. 
in this baseline is that, you know, next year, the deficit is projected to be larger than all of discretionary spending. In other words, forget about cutting waste, fraud, and abuse. You could eliminate all of the discretionary budget and, you know, not, not have a balanced budget, uh, even if, you know, you're not looking for a balanced budget. I mean, it's just like they're both about 6% of GDP. Uh, deficit number is actually in dollar terms projected to be a little bit larger than all of discretionary spending. I mean, that's just, you know, but we're talking about remedies. Um, we've got to get beyond remedies that just cut discretionary spending uh, here and there. That's good. Caps are good. But uh, unless they get into the mandatory spending of the revenues, this uh, problem is going to get bigger and bigger. All right, well, let's let's turn to an existing problem that uh, didn't seem to get any better uh, this week. Tori, there's some new new numbers on inflation. Yeah, inflation numbers came out. I don't know. Where do you want to start? <laughs> you start, we always start rattling off some is it, numbers. Is it here. good news, bad news? Uh, you know, uh, meeting expectations, failing expectations? I, I guess it depends on where you sit. I mean, I think, uh, you know, economists were predicting uh, a 2.9% uh, uh, inflation rate compared to, to last year, year over year. And it came in at 3.1%. So everybody was like, oh my God, hair's on fire. Inflation is out of control, blah, 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 blah. Well, let's put this in perspective. You know, in inflation year over year uh, in December was 3.4%. So we went from 3.4% to 3.1%, right? We're, we're still going down. Inflation is still coming down. It's still slowing on a year over year basis. It's just that a whole bunch of economists were wrong, you know, and they've been reading the economy wrong for a while now. So, you know, pardon me, crocodile tears. Um, uh you know, that inflation didn't cool as much as anticipated. I think the important part is inflation cooled year over year. Um, you know, the core numbers, uh, you know, core number is always a little higher than the than the top line number. Um, and there was a tiny bit of a, you know, there's a, a when you're, there's <laughs> inflation gets confusing when you talk about year over year numbers versus uh, month over month yeah. numbers. So there was a little bit of of acceleration in month over month numbers. Um, you know, inflation top line was zero point three percent over December, where December was only zero point two percent. So there's a little bit of an uptick there. Same with the uh, the core numbers. Um, but overall, I, I think it's just you know markets are having a cow because they've baked in interest rate cuts starting in March or April and there's no way that's going to happen and they're finally realizing that their 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 advice to their investment bankers and their customers and and their model projections have been have been wrong. I mean a, a Jerome Powell chair of the Fed has been saying all along that the the path you know between 4 and 2% is going to be bumpy and it's not going to be linear. Well so Steve uh, just in the last minute that we have here you weren't fooled. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm still looking at the Fed balance sheet. You know, they've they've been piling up treasuries and mortgage-backed securities for so long that uh, you know until they roll off a lot more of their balance sheet, I'm not sure that inflation is going to get down to two percent. But uh, you know, it, it 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 remains to be seen. Well, that's always true of the economy. Uh, what is also true is that we've run out of time for this week. So I'm. <laughs> Want to thank uh, Steve and Tori, and uh, thank you all to uh, uh, Dr. Phil Swagel for joining us in the earlier section sections. 
to discuss uh, the CBO's budget and economic outlook. Uh, Dr. Swagel is, of course, the director of the Congressional Budget Office. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Tune in again next week when we'll have another edition of Facing the Future.